Welcome to the Grow Your Practice podcast. Hi, I'm your host, Chad Madden, owner of Madden Physical Therapy and Breakthrough. Join me each week as we dive into the best practices, systems, principles, tips, and tricks to help you grow your private practice. Hey everybody, Chad Madden here with the Grow Your Practice podcast, and I'm really looking forward to this conversation today. This is one of my favorite private practice owners to talk with and, uh, and catch up with, but this is uh, Mike Lewis. Mike is a private practice owner in uh, Washington State um, and owns Washington Physical Therapy and Rehabilitation. Mike's been in private practice for a little over, I believe, two decades now, and we have a lot of catching up to do. So I have a long list of things here, and Mike, let's get rolling. Welcome to the podcast. Sounds perfect. Thanks, Chad. Thanks for having me on. Great. So uh, let's start in the beginning. Uh, am I right there? You've been in private practice for about 20 years or so? Yeah. So I've been uh, a uh, practicing physical therapist for over 21 years, and I've been a clinic owner for coming up on 14 years now. Okay, great. And you are uh, not only in Washington State, you are in the ground zero uh, of the pandemic, which is Kirkland. Yes, if you want to call, yes, Kirkland, Washington, COVID, uh, ground zero. When the uh, Life Care Center, which was kind of the first major outbreak in the U.S. when that hit, that is a mile and a half from my house. So yeah, it was, and actually, ironically, my wife and I weren't even in town. We were actually, we're in, uh, in Utah for an onsite for our PhD program. And so while all this was going on back here with my clinic and my staff's calling me, what are we doing? I'm like, I don't know, man, I'm trying to take a test right now. I'll, I'll get back to you tomorrow. Yeah. Um, I, so we could go down the path of, you know, how did you, because I know you did a lot virtually for a, a period of time out of necessity. Um, but I also think there, there's a lot that you can offer to the community, Mike, in terms of uh, research you've done. So I, I, I want to go in that direction. Um, okay. you, you also did something, uh, let's call it non-traditional. You, you went back to school very recently to earn uh, an additional degree. Can you talk about that and what you did there? Sure. So let's rewind about four and a half years ago. So four and a half years ago, Chad has heard this story. Uh, I was involved in a very unfortunate accident where I got into a fight with a tree and the tree got into a fight with an electrical power line. And so I was shocked with 12,500 volts of electricity through a tree branch that basically went through my dominant right arm. And so uh, 20 days at uh, Harborview, which is the level one trauma hospital here in uh, Seattle, total of 10 surgeries later to sort of put my arm back together. So that was a little bit of uh, a kind of a rude awakening for me, let's put it that way. Um, partly in terms of I wasn't sure moving forward, what would be the viability since we're a, we're a hands-on profession, what's the viability for me actually uh, being a treating physical therapist. Um, but it also was really the impetus for me to look at my practice. And because I was out for an extended period of time, that injury was in March, I didn't actually come back and start working again until July. And so the practice did manage to survive without me there. But it's what it taught me was I had great staff members, but we didn't always have the greatest procedures and policies and some um, other things in place. And so that was sort of the time in which I sort of reevaluated my priorities. And at that point in time, I also got a little bit more involved in just the physical therapy profession in terms of sort of where is our slot in healthcare? Where is physical therapists and sort of the pecking order do we fall? And I sort of realized that I feel like we're were the low hanging fruit for insurance companies and Medicare and a lot of other companies. And so I got interested in um, policy. And so I decided to go back to school and pursue my PhD. And my specific area of concentration is healthcare leadership and administration. 
So all of the, the nuts and bolts, the bureaucracy of healthcare, the things that most physical therapists absolutely hate, I am actually getting an advanced degree in all of those things. Wonderful. Um, and I did have, I just crossed off electrocution story. So okay, there you go. <laughs> glad you shared that. We didn't even go over that uh, in the prep. Just, yeah. just for semantics <laughs> chat, electrocution, you have to die. So oh, I had an sorry. electric shock injury. So, you know, <laughs> just for clarity and for accuracy for your podcast, for the fact checkers, I was not electrocuted because I would not have survived that. Got it. Got it. So you had an electrical shock. It was, a, it was an electrical shock injury. Okay. Uh, fair enough. Um, no hops, no uh, hard stoppage. No, no. Okay. Yeah, everyone always asks, and they're like, you know, are you? I was actually in a boom. I was 35 feet in the air in a boom lift when it happened. So everyone would know, like, did you, you know, were you thrown across the boom lift? You know, were you knocked unconscious? You know, what it feel like? I'm like, well, it hurts, just for the record. Getting shocked by that much electricity hurts. Um, it was probably the most painful thing I've had done in my entire life. Um, but, you know, no, my heart didn't stop. I was fortunate because the way that it worked, the, the current literally went from my hand to my elbow. And you've seen the scars on my arm, Chad. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, so I basically, and then uh, they had to do a fasciata because electrical burns occur from the inside out, not the outside in, like a traditional burn. So whatever you see damage on the outside, what happened on the inside is significantly more uh, traumatic. So they had to do an emergency fasciotomy and the, the hand surgeon, hopefully no, it's mostly PT is listening to this, right? They won't Correct. be grossed out when I said they did the fasciotomy and the surgeon was like, he's like, I've never seen it. He's like, your arm filleted open like seven inches wide. He was like, wow. everyone in the OR was like, dang. <laughs> it was a harborview's a teaching hospital so i'm sure i was very entertaining at that point in time yeah and uh mike i appreciate your extreme effort to uh with your language containment there that was amazing um, okay good <laughs> yeah i appreciate it uh the, the other thing that you said there in terms of uh healthcare reform and ad advocacy and uh the you know the impetus for going back and studying that is physical therapy is the low-hanging fruit now, we, we've talked uh, on this podcast at events that we've been at together, et cetera, about flipping the pyramid. We can get into the, the details of exactly what that is. Mm -hmm. But I, to me, when I hear low-hanging fruit, it's really low-hanging fruit to pick on. Oh, yeah, it, that's exactly what it is. I mean, the low-hanging fruit, it's, it's right there for you. It doesn't take much to grab that and do yeah. what you want with it. Let's put it that way. Yeah. So what, uh, as you've gone deeper into your studies... And I, I know you've been to the cap, you've been to DC, you've yep. been to, um, you're involved in Washington state advocacy for physical therapy. What are you seeing? With, and I know you've had uh, talks with legislators as well. What are you seeing? And ultimately, you know, what can we do as practice owners to, to make our voice be heard a little bit? Uh, Chad, little that bit is an left. excellent question. How long is our podcast again? fly, Mike, we can go for okay, three hours. We can do yeah. this. So I guess there are a couple, there's a lot of, a lot of layers to the onion here, but probably the big point that I would like to make more than anything is let's just look at time spent with the patients, value of that time, and then what the reimbursement rate is for it. And so Chad, I'll ask you this question is your practice owner. What is the average length of time that a patient is in Madden physical therapy? What is the average length of their appointment there? give or take 60 minutes. Okay. And that's to say, I tell patients that when you come and see us plan on being here 45 to 60 minutes, I said, we prefer to spend an hour with our patients. So Chad, as physical therapists, we spend an hour with our patients. Okay. So you like numbers, Chad, I'll ask you this. What is your clinic? What is your average reimbursement per patient? 104. 
104. So we're slightly higher. We, you, I got you edged out just a little bit, but I think geographically we're in a higher dollar area of the country too. Um, so your therapist spends an hour with the patient and they're going to get reimbursed $104. Correct. Okay. So let's take a look at what happens during that visit. Do your therapists, are they, do they touch their patients? Do they touch the patients? Yes. Okay. So there's some kind of hands-on, some kind of physical contact is occurring between the therapist and the patient. Is there education happening? Yes. Is that education just limited to exercise or are they talking about ergonomics, posture, diet, nutrition, is, you know, sleeping? Um, do, does that type of education occur? Yes. All right. And then is there a follow-up plan? Like when the patient leaves, like, hey, they know exactly, like, this is what I want you doing at home. This is the follow-up plan. Reducing you this number. Are the, does the patient know exactly what's going to happen when they leave your office? Written plan. Okay. And you guys can do that in 60 minutes. Uh, I know it's amazing, right? You're, you're impressive, but this is what you can do when you spend an hour with your patients. And of that time, your therapist, you know, whoever has seen that patient is going to generate $104 for your clinic. Correct. Chad, is this freaking you out? I threw the metrics back on you today. You okay? Oh yeah. I'm good. I, I go through <laughs> this all the time. Like, I'm okay, right, I kind of figured I'm like, yeah. Normally you'd be asking me. So, so here's the thing. So it, for people that maybe are not familiar with the way that billing works, billing and physical therapy uses what we call current procedure. They're called CPT codes. And let's not go into the details of that. Okay. But when a patient sees a physical therapist, probably the most commonly billed code is 97110, which is therapeutic exercise. Chad, you know what your average reimbursement is on average for you guys for that code, for that code, or do you know, you know what your Medicare reimbursement is in your area. You know, I just looked at the, oh, it was uh, 28. 28. Okay, so we're Something 33 like- from Medicare. So Medicare will pay us $33. So, and it's a 15 minute. So these are what we call timed codes. And basically, so for just at its face value for 15 minutes, you're going to get paid $33 for that. Okay. Now, as we know with Medicare, if you build the same code, so everyone's like, well, that doesn't make sense. If you get paid $33, if you see them for an hour, you know, well, the way Medicare works, if you build the same code on the same day, there's a, there's a procedure reduction for that. And mm-hmm. so you get paid $33 for the first code or in Chad's case, 20, but it's going to go down after that. That's just the way that Medicare does their, their codes. So let's take a look at a visit with a doctor. So a mid-level visit with a physician is timed at the same 15 minutes. The code is 99213. In where I live in King County, Washington, Medicare will reimburse that physician $102 for 15 minutes, whereas I will get reimbursed basically $33 for, you know, the 15 minutes that I will spend. And so let's, let's do the numbers on that, okay? So physicians, that people will say, well, shouldn't physicians make more money? But what happens in that 15-minute time frame? My guess is that with a physician, you're probably actually only spending eight of the 15 minutes because there's a rounding factor in that. And they spend the first four minutes, you know, Chad, how's your kids? Tell me about your dog. What's going on in the farms? Chad, are you still composting worms? So half of your visit with the physician was kind of catching up and then a brief talk about whatever too. And they generally never touch you. And sometimes when the patients leave, they're not even sure what their follow-up is going to be. So when you're looking at the value, again, value per time per dollar, I would argue that in healthcare, physical therapists provide the highest amount of value in the time frame that we see the patients for probably the lowest reimbursement. Would you agree with that statement, Chad? I, and I, I don't think it's close, Mike. I, I think we're by far the lowest. It, it, so with, with yeah. all verticals and healthcare that I look at, we are by far the lowest for the best outcome. 
I think actually speech therapists and occupational therapists are lower than us, Chad, but they're I'm in sorry. the allied, they're in the allied professions with us. And they're within a few dollars. They're within a few dollars. But but these are also professions that are the same way. They spend quality time that make a difference. And at the end of every visit at the end of every day. One thing I tell people I love about being a physical therapist is at the end of the day, I can look back and say, you know what? Someone's life is better today because of what I did. I made a difference. Someone is going to go back to work. Someone can get on the floor and play with their granddaughter. Someone can get back on the tennis court. You know, they can go back, you know, and do the things that they want to do. Very few people, I think in any profession can look back on their day and be like, man, I, I really, I actually made a difference and a tangible difference that I can point at. Very few people can do that. And yet as therapists, we can do that every single day. And so when I just look at healthcare in general, I, I feel like the value where we're, where we're spending our money, what we're spending it on could actually be better spent in certain areas too. Now, and this is where the low fringing, low hanging fruit comes in, Chad, is You've been a physical therapist basically as long as I have. We're roughly the same age. Mm -hmm. And would you say most therapists out of any healthcare profession, you know, always have a tendency to bend over backwards for their patient? We'll squeeze in that little extra visit. Hey, I, this one wasn't authorized, but you're here. I'm going to go ahead and treat you today because I got a couple of things I want to cover with you. Don't we go out of our way to be sort of the, the kind, caring profession? Mike, I think we would do care for free. Most of us would just do care for free if we could. Yeah. Now, as a business owner, Chad, is that a good business model? Well, it, it's good for a day. It's, it's, <laughs> you're not going to be open next Monday, but yes. You look at you look at pro bono, you look at write-offs. I bet physical therapists are probably top of the list in terms of medical businesses that actually will do pro bono work or will write off uh, patient balances far more than anyone else will, too. Here's the thing, Chad. That's not a mystery to Medicare. That's not a mystery to insurance companies. They know that if they trim therapy benefits as a profession, we will generally not push back. Now that is not true of the American Medical Association. That is not true for the chiropractors and their association. They cut their reimbursements, they fight and they push back. As therapists and as companies that we work with, there's always this thought, hey, Medicare just cut our reimbursement this year about 3.8%. Wasn't as bad as we thought, so let's all pat ourselves on the back. The APTA did a great job. The cut was less than we thought. And here's what we're going to do. Instead of pushing back, just find a way. Could you do one extra Therex code per every fifth patient you see to help make up the difference? So we're being told, we're being taught, and we're being coached add some cash-based services, that'll help make up the difference, rather than addressing the fundamental issue, which is you don't value us, and we continue to let you railroad us, and we don't push back. And as an organization, as a profession, if we refuse to push back, we're going to constantly be like, oh, God, I need to add orthotics, and I got to bring in a you know, massage therapist, I got to start doing personal training, because I have to have all these cash-based services to make up the fact that I can't make money getting reimbursed from the insurance company. And yet the physician who spent 15 minutes with Chad talking about his worms at his house just got paid $103. Bingo. All right. So I need to come off my soapbox now. Was that? Was that no, we're, you're going to stay okay. on it for a while. Um, so highest value for lowest cost. Yes, I include OTPT speech on allied health. Allied health, how, yep. That's how the government, I believe, uh, CMS.gov, all the documents in there, they they loop, they put us all together in yep. that 2.6%. So yep. I know uh, for those of you that are listening, almost any time you've heard me talking about flipping the pyramid, 
and here's the essence of it. I, I just want to go through this really quick, Mike. Um, the U.S. I think uh, is nearly twelve thousand dollars a year per person right now. There, it's like eleven thousand dollars, eleven thousand eight hundred dollars per year per person in 2019. If you go to CMS.gov, uh, that we're spending in healthcare on each individual in the U.S. So you take 330 million people, 3.9 trillion dollars, or give or take, um, we're roughly a thousand dollars a month per person. If you look at where that money is going. 2.6% goes to PTOT speech. Mm -hmm. The bulk of that money, 72% or $720 per year, goes to injections, medication, surgery via physician office, visit physician service, or hospital healthcare system. So when you know, you're, you're talking about this and we don't push back, th there is this uh, early fallacy. Boy, I'm, I'm biasing the conversation already, but... <laughs> There, there. Most of us, as healthcare providers, um, and especially allied healthcare providers, conservative care, most of us think right away, "Oh, the insurance company wants to save money." I disagree. So, and I, it's not a, it's not popular to say that, um, but I don't think they want to save money. I think they want to show frequently that they're cutting or that they're managing. But um, if you and I own a private insurance company, we actually want to pay out more. Um, I think so, because that's the only way we can increase our rates and increase our profitability legally. But it, it, am I, so it, balance that thought and am I just way off there? And then talk about, ad, you know, bring that back into ad, advocacy and how we cannot get beat up and, you know, get a black and blue eye and, and not say anything about it. Yeah. And Chad, you bring up a really great point, which is oftentimes referred to as the, it's the 80, 20 rule, which, and this was part of the affordable care act when that actually kind of went into effect. And what they did was they, and it sounds great, by the way, it was Al Franken from Saturday Night Live or Minnesota. This was actually his idea. So it's actually called the medical loss ratio. And what this basically refers to is that insurance companies are required to basically spend 80% of the money they collect in premiums has to be paid out in patient care. So for every dollar they charge in premiums, 80 cents will go towards patient care and you know 20 cents they'll basically get to keep for kind of profit and overhead. And so again, that can vary a little bit um, based on the size. It's actually 85 if they insure, I think it's a large group, which is considered 50 people or more. And so it's this concept that you're exactly right, Chad. If insurance companies, if they spend less money, technically, if I have an insurance company, I bring in $100. If I only spend $70 on patient care, I actually have to refund $10 because I didn't hit that 80 threshold. So you're exactly right in that this idea that insurance companies don't want to spend money. Again, there's a lot of layers to the onion. This is just the surface. Let's understand that. Um, but insurance companies actually have been reimbursing. In fact, in 2020, insurance companies, they reimbursed $2.46 billion was actually refunded because they didn't hit that 80% target threshold. Now, that was based on, it's a three-year window. That was based on 2017 to 2019. Um, so don't, if anyone's listening, don't get excited because you didn't get, you know, you're like, where's my check? That's not the way that this works. If your employer purchases your insurance, the refund check would go to your employer. It wouldn't go to you. Um, and only roughly of that 2.46 billion, only 11 million people actually got rebates from that too. 
we we did and we distribute it to our employees just for the yeah so just validating what you're saying that that is a real thing yeah it is a it is a real thing and it basically and it's and the reimbursement actually will be done on a state-by-state basis as well it's not like this is this is not happening globally too now here's an interesting caveat to that and this is what happens the bulk of the reimbursement went to individuals who kind of got on you know the the obamacare for the insurance exchanges they purchased their own plans these are individuals self-employed and so they'll go on your state's insurance you know web page and they'll basically purchase an individual plan now, so that is where a lot of that money, because they typically are really high deductible. So a lot of those patients sometimes don't use their insurance. They have it is sort of catastrophic, but because co-pays and deductibles are so high, they don't often use it. So therefore rates for those plans usage is low. So insurance companies will reimburse them. Now, here's a goofy thing about healthcare, Chad. A lot of those individual plans are subsidized by the government. So Chad Madden signs up for a plan, costs him 500 bucks a month. 250 of that is subsidized by the government, okay, for various different reasons that can happen. Chad Madden's plan, insurance company didn't spend their 80%. They write a refund check to Chad Madden, even though the federal government paid 50% of his premium. So Chad, you might have gotten a check back for more than you actually paid for your insurance premium for the year. That didn't happen. But <laughs> I, 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 I understand Chad the mechanism. Yeah, yeah, yes. yeah. I, and so these are these yeah. are the goofy things that happen in healthcare, and this goes into this idea of we're we're throwing money away, we're wasting money in very unusual places, and it isn't unless you really take a deep dive into some of the things that you realize money in healthcare just it moves in very unusual and strange patterns sometimes. Okay, um, how do we make meaningful change in how do we write the ship mike because the it, you know all of conserve so back to flipping the pyramid so twelve thousand dollars per year per person in the u.s we have this big clunky expensive system um it is not amazing it, in in many ways amazing very amazing and you know when you had your uh, what am I calling this? Electrical shock injury. Yes, that is um, correct. You know, world-class care, right? Uh, you you want to trade that for the world. When we're talking about chronic disease, um, heart health, um, management of basically diabetes, uh, you know, neuropathy, anything along those lines, we are wasting a ton of money. And uh, we are not in the top 20 in any country in the world in anything related to chronic disease. We're, we're very ineffective there. So amazing at acute care, chronic, we, we have a lot of work to do. And to me, the answer is, well, let's put more money in conservative care, which you know, less than 10% of all the money that's spent in uh, the US within healthcare is going to conservative care. And like you said, allied health is only 2.6% in all clinical settings, which is you know, an, anemic. We're not making enough of a dent there. Um, so how do we make, you know, I, and this is the typical practice owner thought process. I don't have time to fly to Washington or go to Harrisburg, even though it's 20 minutes away or the state capital, right, to make meaningful change. Um, I want to rely on some third party. Maybe it's an association. Maybe it's an advocacy group, a lobbyist group, whatever that is. Um, I'll throw a couple dollars there but I want them to make meaningful change. What is it that we can do that will actually get through that 
you, you know, where we, we can make the world a better place for our kids that are growing up right now. So I guess my first thing I'll say, Chad, if I had the answer, Chad, I would have already done it. So let me, let me throw a couple of ideas out there. So the first one I think is, and you're right. I think going to Washington DC, going to your state capital and sitting down, I have done that. Um, it's remarkably ineffective and frustrating. Okay. So the first thought is, well, let's go to the people that make the rules and let's, let's attack them there. And that is extremely hard to do unless you're a large, powerful organization with a very strong, a very large lobbying budget and you hire lobbying companies that are tremendously effective because you throw a lot of money at them as physical therapists. That's not us. Let's just, let's put that aside. So the next piece is that most radical change in society typically comes from the people. And so I think as therapists, we need to be better about having our patients and the public become our advocates. Yeah, so bottom line is, again, going and seeing politicians, I don't think is the right way to go. Instead, we need to basically look towards our patients and have our patients become our advocates. Um, again, because things coming from the groundswell up is oftentimes how you really affect change. And that's been true traditionally and historically. And so going back to sort of why I'm in school right now. So my, my dissertation at this point in time, my, the idea that I'm working with for my research project is actually going to be exploring the behavior of patients as consumers. And what they are is they are consumers of healthcare. Healthcare is their good and their service. There is a lot of research on there about consumer behavior in terms of buying cars, buying electronics, you know, picking out cell phones. Um, what, what cable or internet plan do they like? I think that as healthcare providers, as a healthcare profession, we need to understand the mindset of, we call them patients, but in all reality, they're customers, they're consumers. Why does a patient choose to see three different doctors? They're going to see three different doctors. They're going to go and have an injection. They're trying three different medications. Before they finally make the decision to come and see me, the physical therapist, who at the end of one visit, they look at me and they're like, oh my gosh, I've had back pain for 18 months, and you're the first person that has actually treated me. Why did that patient go see three to four different people, you know, spend all kinds of money on, you know, imaging? Why did that happen before they actually came to someone who actually treated them? Because this might sound, this might be shocking, and I will say this, so we don't have to edit this out, Chad, that's fine. Very often, physicians don't treat patients they sometimes can direct them to different places to go in the healthcare system, but it is not uncommon for a patient to have a visit with a physician and not actually receive treatment. Whereas every time you come and see a physical therapist, you actually receive treatment at that visit because mm -hmm. that's what we do. It's not just, we do lots of education and talking as well, but we actually treat patients. So I'm interested in studying the, the behavior patterns and the decision-making of, of patients. Why do they interact with and choose the routes that they do in the healthcare system? And if we can understand that, how can we redirect and educate those patients to go somewhere else? Love it. Um, a lot of different directions we can go. I, um, I'm gonna share a story with you. Mike, because I, I don't think we're alone in PT. Um, Fourth of July, I, uh, my wife and I are at her family's uh, family picnic, Fourth of July picnic. And 
uh, Steph's cousin is married to a naturopathic doctor. And we were talking about some problems within the healthcare system. She has a, a growing, thriving practice here. I think they have four or five naturopathic doctors and central PA, This she's way ahead of the curve. She's crushing it here. Um, but anyhow, you know, I said, what are, what are you typically seeing? There's, you know, their first appointment is I think 75 to 90 minutes. And you had said, you know, layers of the onion. She said, we are getting people that are, you know, that have been misdiagnosed for years. And she told a specific story of a patient uh, that was now 19, 20 years old, I believe a gymnast. And, uh, you know, basically had been mismanaged through a, an episode of back pain six or seven years prior, and now was on uh, more than a dozen different medications. Um, and, and, you know, at tremendous cost, not only to the healthcare system, but also to her own, you know, well-being, well basically at Shelf College and, you know, was having trouble concentrating because of all these side effects and all this other stuff going on. And she said, like, you know, that, that is what I'm dealing with. And she said, why can't, you know, if we would have seen her five or six years ago, we could have helped her immediately avoid all, all these problems. And now we have this expensive snowball um, that is going to take years to unravel and basically has shelved the maturation process of an early adult and a young woman. And she was like, what is the, and, you know, we were both going back and forth, like how horrible this is. So um, it, I, I want to tie that back to, there was something key that you said, which is you and I talking about what's in it for us as physical therapy practice owners doesn't mean anything to a legislator. When I talked with, uh, you know, Carl Kleinpeter and uh, Katie, um, oh, Katie Britton, I believe, uh, down in Louisiana, and they made some meaningful change, they said, what, what transition for us is when we started talking about what's in it for the patient, what's in it for, we call them patients, legislators call them voters. Mm -hmm. the, second, the second that we like crossed that bridge and changed our perspective and point of view, they, they started to listen and, and make some meaningful change there. And I, 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 I've seen it happen myself. So yes, the, the pain point is very real. We see how the system's broken. We see people that you know, have done YouTube videos, or uh, they've been to seven other clinicians at tremendous expense um, over the last four or five years in terms of mismanagement, or I think you said 18 months. Um, and yeah, it's not right. But how, uh, so it, I'm, I'm curious, in your dissertation, in your primary thesis, what are you seeing in terms of patterns of behavior and psychology that influences why somebody chooses a certain treatment path over another option. So a couple of things come to mind. One of the first ones that I would say is oftentimes health insurance is complicated. Those of us that are in it all the time, it's complicated. When your patients get, they get this thing called an EOB and they're like, why is this? This says it's, a, it's gosh, Chad, it says it's 350 bucks here, but then it actually was only 47. I don't understand this. Insurance is complicated. So at its core, our patients don't understand how, they don't understand interest. They don't understand how the healthcare system works. They don't understand how we bill. There's a little bit of a snowball effect in that. And so when I talk with patients about this, I explain it in terms of car insurance. And it's really simple. Everyone understands car insurance. And it's as simple as this, Chad. Who pays for bad drivers? The good drivers. 
you have to have people paying into the system that don't use it to pay for the people that are driving like maniacs and getting in car accidents, right? In healthcare, who pays for sick people? It's the healthy people, right? What people need to understand is that every decision that we make has a global effect. And so I tell the patients, if you're the person that ever was having knee pain and you went and sat in front of your doctor and said, Dr. Chad, I want an MRI on my knee because something's not right. And I'm not going to leave this room until you send me for an MRI. I don't care if you think I just need to take some ibuprofen and I said, I want an MRI on my knee. And they demand a service, an expensive service be done. So I tell patients, if you have done that, you are responsible for, to some extent, our spiraling costs in healthcare, because you're actually asking your physician to recommend and prescribe a service that they actually may not want to, but physicians, and this is another interesting fact about healthcare too, your doctor is afraid of you. And that's a fact. Doctors are afraid of their patients because patients sue doctors. There's a really interesting article, Chad, and I can forward this to you later. And it was a survey done of roughly about, I don't know the numbers in front of me, about 2,000 physicians. And they basically asked them, what percent of healthcare do you think is, is unnecessary? It's wasteful. And I want to say, like, the physicians are like about a third. About a third of what we do and what we order is waste. The follow-up question is, why is that? Almost overwhelmingly, I'm afraid of being sued. So I order every test under the sun and cross every dot, you know, or cross every T and dot every I to make sure that I'm not going to get sued. This adds a tremendous cost to our healthcare system. And it really boils down to sometimes as, as a patient, understand the decisions that you're making and what you're asking for contributes to the expense of the whole thing. Because at the end of the day, we all pay for everything. We all pay for Medicare. We all pay for Medicaid in our states. If you're on Primera or Regents or Aetna, you're paying for all of those people. So if all of those people are making poor decisions, we all have to pay for that. So everything, every decision that we make has a consequence in terms of cost. And getting people to understand that, I think, is one aspect of, of kind of getting costs under control. And I think as therapists, because we spend so much time with our patients, we actually get to have conversations with them. And so these are the little nuggets and the ideas. I think we need to kind of plant some of these seeds in our patients we're talking with about why are we making certain decisions? Hey, this is why your doctor probably didn't order an MRI. And by the way, great doctor who was it because I'm going to start recommending patients go to that particular person too, because that's a doctor that gets it. That wasn't, you know, that even though you asked for the MRI, he understood, you know what, in this particular case of back pain, you go see the PT and you're going to be fine. Yep. Smart. Um, doctors are afraid of patients that I think I read that study. Um, pretty sure it's on uh, nutritionfacts.org. Michael, uh, Gerger published it because there was something else in that study about um, yeah, what, what influences uh, physician decision-making. It was uh, fear of patients, I think was number one. Number two, I think was a uh, financial incentive. And <laughs> that'll come down. That'll, that won't, it, <laughs> right, hey, Chad, you and I both work in healthcare. We're both, yeah. we're both business owners too. And yeah. at the end of the day, you have, you have to make your dollars and uh, there is this concept in healthcare that, you know, we're, we're, we should be in it for the patients, but every hospital, every, every physical therapist, every chiropractor, every massage, we have to, we, we want to get paid. Yes. We, we have to get paid. Yep. So there is, there's always going to be 
financial of the decision maker there always at the end of the day will be a financial rationale behind that now that hopefully that's not the driving factor but it's relevant and yes some of these physicians in certain systems they practice in the hospitals will actually track how much money they're they're how much revenue are they generating based on referrals typically to within their in-house you know so if you're an internist and you're sending patients to a bunch of imaging studies and specialists and bouncing them around to your organization you're a high value employee because you generate a lot of dollars for them now, yeah. let's be clear, Chad, I don't, I don't think most physicians practice that way or believe that too. So let's, this is not, we're not, this is, this is bashing doctors. I have a lot, you get me treated too. I have a lot of physicians that are friends, surgeons, and I actually have quite a few physicians come and see me as patients. And one of my favorite questions to ask them is this, are you practicing medicine today the way you thought you were going to when you were in medical school? And every single one of them says, absolutely not. And I said, are you happier with how you're practicing today than how you thought you were going to. And they're like, not a chance. So physicians have struggles just like we do as well too. So let's not, again, a lot of the decisions that they're making, how they're practicing is they're, they have constraints put upon them just like we do as well. So let's be yeah, clear on that. There, other clinicians are never the enemy. No. Um, I would agree with you. Um, the, so uh, the one thing that I want to pull out here is there was a sentiment when you and I both entered physical therapy um, and the clinical space. And it was uh, especially late 90s, early 2000s. Um, the insurance companies paying for it will get it. And, you know, this is long before the $500 a month insurance premium and the $75 visit co-pays or $7,500 a year deductibles. Um, this is back in the day of $5 deductibles. Yeah. <laughs> and people got extremely upset when it went to 10. Um, but the, the, I, and I can remember I, I, uh, while I was going through college, I delivered medical equipment and it was expensive medical equipment. And I remember, um, the, the cost of that equipment was more than $5,000. And I knew what the, the certificate of medical necessity had to say, I understood like, you know, I could see the paperwork coming through and then I would go see somebody and I was like, wow, like they were, and frequently they would say whether it would be the clinician or uh, the patient them the, the the recipient themselves hey insurance is paying for it and i just remember thinking at you know 22 23 years old wow like <laughs> where, where is this money tree at uh how can i grow these money trees that are, are just gonna you know continue to fund this type and, and, you know now 20 years later we're we're paying for it dearly but um, I, I have not heard that again. I've not seen that again. I think it is very much shifted now. The patient is their own advocate. They are paying you know, a portion of their premium. Sometimes it's subsidized, but many times you know, they're having to pull out that $75 copay or they're, they're having to pay their $5,800 deductible or whatever that is out of their pocket. So they're a better advocate now than they, they were for their own care 20 years ago. Um, so Mike, I... I want to grab your thoughts on that. And then also, where do you think it's going in the next five to 10 years? Uh, with, because I know you're deep into studying this. Like what's the, what's the next, uh, next kind of the next steps. Evolution? Yes. So I agree with you, Chad. So back in the day, we called that the Microsoft plan. That's, you know, Microsoft's, you know, Redmond is right next to me in Kirkland. And so we called it Microsoft. They could pretty much do anything that they, they could have anything, do anything that they wanted. Um, so one of the course corrections when the Affordable Care Act was kind of this, this idea is that, you know, those, the Cadillac plans, they call them basically went away. And that's a whole, that's another podcast in and of itself. But 
I want to piggyback on that. But what it did was it created a mindset. And the other thing that was happening at that time too, Chad, is that was managed care was a big thing. It was the gatekeeper. It was the physician as gatekeeper. To do anything else, you had to go see your doctor first, right? So you get the referral for the x-ray or physical therapy or the medication or the surgery or the injection. So you kind of had these two things happening at the same time. So let's go back to this gatekeeper idea. So right now, Chad, I know you know this as well as I do, most medical appointments are made by the matriarch of the family, okay? In fact, today, my wife was trying to coordinate a telehealth visit for my daughter who's in school in Boston, right? So, but that was my wife's job was to coordinate all of that. So the reality of it is the matriarch does it. So let's look at the age of the individuals who, are, who function in that role. They're probably in their 40s to 50s at this point in time. So they oftentimes were influenced by this idea of a gatekeeper. And we still see that here in Washington. We have had direct access for a long time. Patients can come directly to us as physical therapists. And yet the number of patients who think they have to go and see a physician first is mind boggling. For as well-educated as people are in our area, when it comes to healthcare, they're not real smart. And I think part of it is this legacy that in their mind, you have to go and see this gatekeeper. And so that also is why, why do patients typically go and see physicians first? Because frankly, they think that they still have to. When in most states and in most instances, that's not the case anymore. So part of it is we have a long memory for certain things like that. And so we're, we're seeing that. Is that resonating with you, Chad? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, the... Go, go back to the, the not real smart. I, I, I don't need to give you a mulligan there, but, um, <laughs> but um, it, the, so yeah, th there, there is a, there's an education gap in how the healthcare system works. I, that seems to be what you're saying. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And uh, let's be and, clear. Yes. It's not a lack of intelligence, but it's, yeah. it's a lack, lack of understanding. It would be a better way to phrase that is yeah. a lack of understanding of how to navigate the healthcare system. And let's be honest, that's not exact. That's not their fault. It's a system that they grew up with, but have we done anything to educate them differently? And again, yeah. you know, we can hold an event in Texas because it's direct access got passed. Direct, you know, we love our in, we love our terms in medical terminology, don't we? Too direct access means nothing too. So I tell patients, hey, here's what this means: in Washington State, you can go directly to your healthcare provider of choice almost irregardless. There are very very few insurance companies that will tell you otherwise. But for the most part, you can go and see your healthcare provider that you'd like to directly in Washington State. And so we make sure to make this a point with every patient that I see. Every patient that I see when I'm discharging them, they're back to where they're like, tell them, said, hey, next time something comes up, call me. Just call me directly. You know, you don't have to go and see your doctor. I said, if you got something weird going on, you know, you sprain your ankle, you twist your knee doing something. I said, give me a call, stop on in. I'll get on the phone and we'll talk it through it. If you can come and see me, great. If I think you need to go somewhere else, I can help you navigate that as well too. So part of that is this education. We need to educate people how to navigate the healthcare system. The more we do that, the more that is going to snowball into their friends, their family, their kids are going to grow up in a different system. I have a lot of patients now who bring their kids directly to me. Those kids are now may become the medical decision makers. No, I can go directly to the physical therapist because they've grown up in that system. So looking towards the future, Chad, that's part of your answer right there is, yep. you know, it's this education piece and then having that have a generational effect. Got it. So your, your question was, does it resonate? Absolutely. I'd never thought about it in that way. 
but the um yeah the 48 to 53 year old matriarch uh is scheduling the majority of medical appointments healthcare appointments in the u.s it's absolutely right what was the system that she grew up in it was that uh hmo and yeah. and the gatekeeper exactly what you're talking about um managed care organization the um okay so the, and completely get where it's going in the future. Um, we're educating, educating the public on that they can come directly to us. Um, we have found the, the best way to do that is uh, just having conversations, opening up conversations with them. It happened to me uh, you know, this morning, dropping my daughter off at preschool. Uh, hey, this is going on with my shoulder. Do I need to see my doctor first? And right, it, it happened in the parking lot there. Um, and yeah, happens quite frequently. It, and is, is that what you mean by education, Mike? Like just yes. having a conversation? Yeah. That, no, that, that's exactly it too. And then I want to go back to something you said earlier too, Chad, about you mentioned, you know, this idea of, we talked a little bit about kind of going to legislatures, but you talked a little bit about, you need to kind of flip the conversation of these are your voters. Like, how does this affect the patient? And a good example of that is uh, pre-authorization prioritization became a big deal here in Washington state about you know, four or five years ago. And our Washington state physical therapy chapter worked really hard uh, with our lobbyists and then with key members of our state legislature. And we actually got a bill passed and signed that basically prevents prior authorizations for an initial evaluation and six treatment sessions uh, before they have to. So we actually got that. And the way that the APTA here in Washington accomplished that was really saying, this is detrimental to the patients. This is affecting the patients. And we had patients write letters, yeah. not necessarily just the therapist complaining about it. So you are exactly right in that we need to turn uh, patients into advocates for our profession. And the conversation that you need to have with pe the people in power is you, what you're doing needs to, it's affecting patients and people in a negative way. And how can we how can we fix that system? So that method of talking with legislatures can be effective, and we've seen that here in Washington State specifically. Ironically, our copay bill we tried to pass limiting copays kind of fell flat on its face, um, but that might be something we circle back to at some point in time as well. And so today, what can we do? What can we do to take the burden and uh, you know the, the problems off of the patients and the consumers? Yes, um, the, yeah. The one thing that I would like to shine a light on uh, for the community, all clinicians in general is that there are very positive things that are happening um, in legislature. And there's a, there are some commonalities when we have success. And I, I wish that was more, more readily available to all of us because I think frequently what will happen is we get lost in our own little small world and it's, you know, it's that defeatist mentality and we feel like we're on an island all alone, um, but there are some very positive things that are happening. And, capturing those acres of diamonds that we're walking by every single day with patients that are making meaningful changes, whether it's the vestibular patient that you and I were talking about beforehand, or, you know, the helping the grandmother sit on the floor and play with her grandchildren again, whatever that may be, um, we're, we're missing those opportunities. And I wish there was a more systematic way we could go about um, doing that for uh, meaningful change. Um, Mike, I have a rapid fire list. Are you fine if I go yeah, through go for it? Um, great. So uh, the I, um, I know you have the stormtrooper masks on your shelf over your I do. left shoulder. Wonderful. Um, my favorite stormtrooper ever. Uh, the last year you were David Pumpkins for your hollow for Halloween. Chad's right? been on my Facebook page. Yes. 
<laughs> I, I, I recall commenting on that before too. So uh, it's, I didn't have to do that much, much work to find that. Um, what, what's playing for this year? Are you going to be you know, actually, I have not come up with an idea yet for this year. So I, oh, I don't know serious? the answer to that. The Stormtrooper is a classic, but it's about 20 minutes to put that thing on. And it's just beastly hot inside it. I haven't actually worn that for Halloween in quite a while. So maybe, how did you, how did you like come into that? Oh, so, well, long story short, we were at Disneyland with my kids. We're standing in line for the Star Tours and the, the real, the Stormtroopers come out and they're interacting with all the guests. And my daughters are like, dad, you should get like a full on Stormtrooper costume. And I'm like, yes, dad should. So I went home, did a little research and realized it's about $3,000. And I'm like, well, dad's not going to do that. But I found a company in the UK that had original molds because that's where the original, the movies were filmed over there. And they had an original mold of the actual Stormtrooper armor. I contacted them and got them to vacuum mold all the parts and pieces. So I got these, oh, they shipped over to me sheets of plastic that were with the, you know, stamped with the mold. I had to cut it out and actually assemble the entire thing. And yeah, I built the helmet from scratch and the whole nine yards. And which was great because you've met me in person, Chad. I'm not exactly like five, nine, like 170 pounds, which is kind of like the average stormtrooper size. You know, I was I'm just, I'm like 20 pounds bigger than that. So anyway, I was actually able to customize what actually fits me correctly. So yeah, the actual piece that came with it, I mean, the thigh piece fit my calf muscle. So nice. Long, that's the, that's the, the stormtrooper story. And then I surprised my kids didn't know I was doing it. I built it in the garage and then just put it on one day. Didn't tell anybody, walked into the house with it. Dogs going nuts. Kids start crying. It was a great, <laughs> fantastic parent moment. Awesome. Man. Uh, and you're about six two, Mike, just to give everybody. Uh, about six feet. Yeah. yeah. About, about six feet, Chad. Yeah. Fair. Um, you also brought up uh, the Microsoft plan. And I know uh, you, you have a boat, correct? What do you say? It, you, don't you have a boat? And you go right by. Oh, uh, yes. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, oh yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we, we go we go by Bill Gates house. And that's a everyone likes to take a selfie in front of Bill Gates house. That is true. Okay, great. And uh, yeah, so he's within a couple miles from w where your dock is or yeah, just around yeah, around the corner. Yep. Great. That's great. Um, the what was the uh, I, I was thinking about this, I don't drink a lot of whiskey, but I probably have had more whiskey with you than any other person uh, on the planet. Um, it, it, that's not reciprocal by the way chad i had more whiskey <laughs> with other people than i have had with you sorry but uh what, what what was the um didn't you get a green label or something like that oh i got the blue label is what i got when that was in atlanta when i bought that for you and the team yeah oh yeah, yeah. great so much appreciative um we'll have to do that again sometime soon that next are you gonna on buy me. this time though chad that's what i said next one's on okay me. Yeah, yeah. all right um yeah i i think we're going to do an event in Orlando so you can bring your stormtrooper costume uh tour to Orlando just for the record Disneyland does not allow adults to wear costumes <laughs> in the park I'm not going to say I found that out the hard way but that that's a rule though Chad <laughs> that would be amazing if you if you could get through the turnstile with that that's great um Ron Burgundy podcast favorite podcast uh no Chad it's yours obviously Mike. I mean, Ron Burgundy slots in there second. Okay. okay. Yeah. Second favorite podcast, Ron Burgundy. I do. I do enjoy the Ron Burgundy podcast. Yeah. I, well, I dressed before David Pumpkins. I actually dressed up. I actually dressed up as Ron Swanson, but everyone thought it was Ron Burgundy. So yeah. Anyway. Fair enough. Uh, do you have a favorite episode? So for those of us that haven't listened to the Ron Burgundy podcast, I think I've listened to one episode. Oh, gosh. Um, 
I'm trying to think of something I could say that'd be sort of podcast appropriate for you. They actually did like an old time mystery throwback one that um, was entertaining. Again, I'm going to put a caveat on that. That's probably PG 13 plus for all yeah. your listeners out there. It's wonderful. Um, degree. We talked about that. Um, you're, you're working on a future project. Are we allowed to talk about Oh, that? you read the email that I sent too. Yes. <laughs> of course I read it. <laughs> so future, so getting my PhD. Um, so as a practice owner, I, my favorite thing I do is still treat patients. So at this point in time in my career, I don't see myself giving up being a practitioner, but having gone through this process, what I'm interested in actually of ultimately doing is actually probably getting into some consulting and consulting for uh, small to medium sized healthcare businesses and mm -hmm. targeting certain aspects, particularly certain things like working with millennial millennials now make up the bulk of the workforce in the United States. And there's, there's still some, boomer age clinic owners out there, but a lot of them are kind of now us, us Gen Xers that own clinics and understanding the unique mindset of how to work with millennials and how to get the most out of them. Um, because a lot of the traditional things that you're taught about business and how to kind of manage employees is derived from the boomers kind of down and it doesn't necessarily work with millennials real well. So I have a, a whole series on that. Um, also, uh, how to manage change because healthcare is constantly changing and there are actual formulas uh, around actually how to successfully implement change in at an organizational level too. And so actually adapting a lot of those techniques specifically for healthcare. So in a nutshell, Chad, that's what it has to come down to is targeting certain specific areas of managing and running a healthcare business that traditionally aren't covered in a lot of, you know, classes in business schools or, you know, other people that you might actually work with. Love it. Uh, so Chad Orlando, if you want to, want to fly me down, I'd be happy to do a couple of those for you guys. That's, that's great. Sounds like a deal. Um, the, uh, as long as you bring the stormtrooper. Bring the stormtrooper. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I heard small, medium sized businesses, primarily in healthcare change management and working with millennials, which is a problem that uh, um, a challenge that we all, it comes up every single time we do an event, you know, yeah. how do I get my, how do I um, help my team? You know, how do I incentivize my team? And I think many times exactly what you're saying, like we're using things that would have motivated us. Yeah, we that's were exactly it. And we don't understand. Old. I want to be clear too. Millennial bashing is kind of a thing people like to do, but it's really the wrong thing to yeah. do. And yeah. what it really comes down to is just a lack of understanding that there are very specific generational differences in terms of how we perceive each other, but also how we perceive ourselves. And there's some really fascinating research on that, you know, some studies that are done. And that, that's part of what, you know, what I talk about too, is that if when you understand where they're coming from and why they're acting and behaving and making decisions, it actually, it clicks and it resonates and it really makes a lot of sense. And yeah. once you understand that, you can learn how to manage that particular employee population really well. And again, they are the bulk of the workforce. So if you cannot play nice with the, with the millennials, you're gonna have a real problem. And it also comes down to what we call power, authority, and influence, and how those three different personality traits and types of management and leadership will actually play into that dynamic as well. And depending on who you are, you might have one or all three of those things and how you transition in managing, a, we call it situational leadership. How do you manage, you don't manage people, you manage situations. 
mm-hmm. your style needs to be adaptable to that too. And there are just, there are specific skills you can learn uh, that go along with that emotional intelligence. You know, can you read a room? Um, there are a lot of things in terms of if you can master some of those skills, and these are skills that actually can be learned and can be taught. You can become a much more effective clinic owner because you now are equipped to deal with every situation, every type of employee that you might come across. Yeah, love it. Uh, sounds exciting. Very much looking forward to learning more about that, Mike. What is the best way for uh, our listeners here to get in contact with you if they want to learn more about what you're doing? They can just email me directly. It's Lewis, L-E-W-I-S, at waptrehab.com. Anyone is welcome to shoot me a direct email. I'm more than happy to take direct contact. You don't have to go through a website or anywhere else. Just email me directly. Lewis at WAPT.com. WAPTrehab.com. Great. Thank you for the clarification. Yeah, Chad will edit that in (laughs) post-production. I I think we leave it in. (laughs) There you go. Way way more memorable. Good, good. WAPT, Um, I think that's a radio station or a TV station somewhere back in uh, on the East Coast. So they won't won't find me that way. Got it. Um, So other than Al Franken, Al Franken, um, and I know we covered a lot of ground here, and I, I, I would be remiss if I didn't say I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and gosh darn it, people like me uh, in, in the 80 20. You realize he lost his job though for uh, various reasons, right? <laughs> yes, yeah. Um, for the record, we're, we're not advocating Al Franken. <laughs> <laughs> we, um, moving forward, um, any other words of advice for owners that are out there um, trying to you know, mitigate the huge decline in reimbursement, which you know, we really didn't get to talk about that too much in terms of specifics, but most yep. of us are facing, you know, an up to an 18% cut for if, if we're working with PTAs, 3% uh, physician fee cut across the board with Medicare being proposed right now. How do we, um, any words of advice, you know, how, how do you do it, Mike? And uh, any, any parting words there? Yeah. So a couple things would be, and we've done this in our clinic is I think it's, if you don't do it every year, you, you, I would do it every six months, review every contract that you have review your, whether it's your, your internet provider, your TV provider in your clinic, uh, your website provider, take a look at all the contracts you have and find out, is there anything that can be renegotiated? So can you trim your monthly expenses to some extent? I think as a lot of us have adopted more and more technology in our clinics, what we're realizing is there can be a lot of redundancy. You know, maybe you have two or three different companies you're kind of having, you know, working with marketing and all of a sudden you realize I've got a campaign monitor and a MailChimp and, you know, I'm, I've got three different email lists that are all overlapping with each other. Are there, are you paying for redundancies? And can you go back to that individual, you know, contract and said, hey, you know what? Can we, can we renegotiate instead of paying you guys a thousand bucks a month? I would like to cut out these couple of services and can we get it down to 700? Most of these companies will be willing to work with you. So look at your contracts would be number one. Um, number two, look at your employee mix. And I think that this is something that becomes relevant when you're looking at the cut to PTAs treating uh, Medicare patients. And basically as of right now, unless it changes, you know, if with PTAs, if they treat 10% or more of the visit, it's going to reimburse at a lower rate. So if you do a share between a PT and a PTA, if you're doing a 50-50 split at your visits, stop doing that. Either have the PT basically, I mean, if you're gonna have a PT involved, have them basically, assuming that they can, you know, based on what's being provided, have the PTA treat that entire encounter. 
because otherwise your, your hydrodollar PT should be doing their own caseload too. Because if that PTA does 10% or more, it has to be reimbursed at the lower rate. So even if your PT is involved, you're going to get paid less for your PT's time. So that would be another one. The other one too, and this is, this is a little bit of a pet peeve for me, is I think we have a little bit of an aid problem in our profession. Uh, AIDS, traditionally, with most insurance companies, if you read your contracts, cannot do anything that can be insurance reimbursable. And Chad, this might be shocking, but PTs and PTAs can change pillowcases. They can wipe down tables. They can clean exercise balls. So in my clinic, I do this as well. I actually clean more tables than probably anyone else in the clinic. Well, Tammy helps out a lot too. But I think sometimes look at, you know, some of these other people we have in the clinics too. And are they necessary? Do we need the same number of them? So look at your employee mix as, you know, as the, what we can do with certain employees is dictated from the top down. Take a look at it and said, hey, can I, can I look at rearranging a few job responsibilities and change a few things around here as well? Yeah, Mike and I, very wise advice there. Love the list. Uh, you, you were very prepared for that. So I appreciate it. But the, we, we literally just went through this and I had asked Tracy, I think we were up to 90 employees, maybe 88, 90. Are you at three clinics right now, Chad? Six. We're up to six? Yeah. We've done. Oh, that's right. You spin them off with, yeah, you, you, you change your names, Chad. We're all one name now. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We're, we're, we're back to one name. Mad, streamlining? Madden PT, yes. All right. Um, so I, I just asked Tracy last week, I said, hey, uh, aren't we at 90? employees or so and she said we're actually at 79 and i said oh what's going on we we can't hire aides and so i'm not sure what uh washington state's like right now but the the job market for the avail the supply just completely dropped yeah. out and so we're working through that right now you know dividing it up redefining physical therapy and ptas to handle laundry and tables and the it's other doable stuff Yep. I've, I, I've timed myself. I'm kind of curious. I can actually, I can wipe down a table and change the pillowcases. It takes me usually about 40 to 45 seconds. Great. I can, yeah. I mean, if 40 to 45 seconds of a treatment session is spent cleaning a table, that's, that's well within, that's within my price range as a PT. I can do that. That's not a, that's not a hard ask. That's, and you have that electrical shock injury as that's well. That's true. So. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so it, so uh yeah static yeah. electricity doesn't has nothing to me anymore <laughs> that's great well mike uh out of respect for your time very much appreciate the the breadth of uh knowledge and ground that you covered here in your time with us you also survived a, a computer power outage and uh came back on here to, yeah that might get cut out right my laptop be forgetting to plug my laptop in and having the battery die yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll straighten that, edit out. that out. Okay, perfect. Yeah. And, and we'll figure a way to, uh, to actually work can it you out put, it, it, put up an well. intermission with like a little music that kind of plays in there. <laughs> That'd be great. Do you, do you have a recommendation for, are we going Pearl Jam or something? Uh, oh, it's Seattle. Pearl Jam would be a classic. Yeah. Are you okay. go Jimi Hendrix if you want to go a little bit old school? That would be fine. Ooh, Jimi yeah. Hendrix, Little Purple Haze. Great. Well, Mike, uh, Mike Lewis, greatly appreciate you being here. Thanks, and Chad. Thank you for, uh, for dropping some wisdom and knowledge. I appreciate it. Anytime. Take care. Thanks, John. Remember to visit getbreakthrough.com to access our free resource library designed specifically for private practice growth. While you're there, make sure you register for a complimentary growth assessment to learn about potential opportunities for growth in your local market. Again, thank you for tuning into the Grow Your Practice podcast and supporting our mission to help people in pain get back to normal naturally.